What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If there is a universal value, it is that tendency to push against tyranny and exploitation. And if we can foster that tendency in ourselves, in our societies, then this is a historical moment where we absolutely need to capture and foster that. We're back today with another bonus conversation for Unpopular. If you haven't yet listened to the first season of Unpopular, you should go ahead and do that because there are a lot of amazing stories on different people in history who resisted the status quo and were persecuted for it. But today's conversation is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Priyambada Gopal, who is the author of the book Insurgent Empire anti-colonial resistance, and British descent. And my hope for these conversations is that we can add just another layer on top of this conversation around descent and around what descent means today and around what we can learn about the histories of descent and the legacies of descent. And Dr. Gopal has a lot to say and knows a lot about descent and anti-colonial resistance. And I really hope that you enjoy today's conversation. So let's get into it. My name is Priyambada Gopal, and I'm a lecturer in the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge in the UK. So you have a book, Insurgent Empire, about anti-colonial resistance. Uh, as I understand it, you came kind of about you know, doing all the research on this topic and writing this book from a controversial instance, um, a little back and forth that happened in the beginning. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I was invited onto the BBC, onto one of its kind of flagship uh, discussion programs on the radio uh, to discuss uh, Empire. Um, one of the occasions for that discussion was, I think, the publication of uh, the right-wing historian Neil Ferguson's book on the empire. And in the course of that discussion, there were five of us in that discussion, um, it became very clear that the 
presenter, the host's stance, and Ferguson's stance was one that was very much about how great the British Empire had been and how even though there might have been a kind of few, uh, you know, mishaps uh, on the whole, it was a benevolent force that shaped the world uh, for the better in the image of uh, Britain. Um, there were two people of color on the panel, the eminent black theologian Robert Beckford and myself. And it ended up uh, being kind of as a strange discussion where it was only Robert and I who were raising some doubts about whether the empire was, had been all that great. Um, and we brought up questions of slavery, indenture, racism, uh, you know, land grabs, ethnic cleansing, famines. Um, and all of that was sort of, uh, you know, treated slightly dismissively by uh, certainly by Ferguson. Um, and then that evening, the BBC took a very unusual step where they uh, did another program, basically, uh, in which they brought on an Indian woman uh, to say, I think, uh, in, in, in one sense, that I was not representative of Indians um, and that a lot of Indians were very grateful to the empire and that they really uh, cherished the memory of the empire and so on. So that incident uh, has never quite uh, gone away from for me. And um, I've written about the empire since then in the British press. I've been involved in debates around decolonizing uh, the curriculum and uh, also about how we commemorate the empire. So this book is kind of related to that incident, but also to discussions that I've had since then. And, and also it's partly a response to my students often telling me that they're not taught anything about the empire, um, that when uh, they are taught uh, something about the empire, it's very, very, uh, generally very positive um, and very sketchy in the details. Why do you think that is? Why is it that, that your students are taught about the empire in that way? And why does this idea persist that the empire was kind of the savior and viewed in this positive light? Well, I think... You know, there are many reasons. One of them is that uh, the idea of having headed a benevolent and great empire is still extremely important to uh, British national self-image, certainly the official self-image as is propagated by government and by the mainstream media there. I think that there is an awareness that if you open up the can of empire, then there are a lot of worms in there. And uh, I don't think there is an appetite to deal with the ugliness that might surface. I mean, the fact is that any discussion about the empire is going to be very difficult for all concerned, uh, you know, whether whatever race or uh, ethnicity or religious background you're from. It's a very complicated and, and in many ways, very ugly story, very demanding story, I would say. And I don't think that the school curriculum is at all equipped to discuss difficult issues and not, not unlike, you know, slavery uh, in the United States would force people to come to terms with some very complicated and um, less than pretty sides of their own history. So I think there's a, a general reluctance. There is certainly an enforced amnesia about the less palatable sides of empire. And what is out there in the public domain is, is really banal. It's very facile. It's sort of like, yeah, there were a few bad things, but, you know, on the whole, it was really quite good. Um, and I think that that story would be blown to pieces if there was any 
serious engagement uh, with the empire. So I think I think this kind of uh, British self-conception, national self-conception is very dependent on the idea of having not only having had a great empire, but also therefore uh, being an important country uh, today in the world uh, at a time when it's frankly losing um, its uh, status and its power. So it becomes even more important mm. to kind of click that story. So speaking of slavery, there is also here around slavery this idea that, uh, largely persisting, not that everybody thinks about it this way, but this kind of overarching idea that slaves were kind of docile, that they didn't resist, that they even, you know, were happy about the lots of the their lives. And yeah. that's just not true. You know, we have a lot of his, you know, historical documentation yeah. about yeah. the fact that slaves yeah. did yeah. resist um, and yeah. in so many different ways. And that's that's also true when it comes to anti-colonial resistance and the British Empire. So can yeah. you talk about how people did resist or kind of, you know, the ways in which they resisted um, a- imperialism and when it came to the British Empire? Yeah. So I actually began the book with a chapter that I pulled out uh, later on just because it became too complicated. I I began the book talking about some of the last slave rebellions that took place between 1807, the abolition of the slave trade, and then the uh, eventual emancipation uh, by 1838. Um, That 30-year period was filled with rebellions, as, of course, there were rebellions before as well. And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, begin with the slave, uh, uh, the slavery part of the British Empire um, is that slaves rebelled constantly. Uh, you know, slavery required an immense course of apparatus, as we know. Um, I think this is true of America, but I think it's very true of Britain, is that Britain also likes to think of itself as the abolitionist nation. Mm -hmm. So um, it likes to think of itself not as a nation which uh, undertook slavery for several centuries, but as the nation which led the way in abolishing slavery. And in order to hold on to that myth, uh, which is a kind of a white savior myth, uh, all the focus is put on people like Thomas Clarkson and uh, Wilberforce. Uh, And, uh, you know, the idea is that white, uh, enlightened white men came and freed the slaves. But actually, I wanted to begin by talking about how slaves rebelled all the time, uh, even after the so-called abolition of the slave trade. It didn't abolish slavery, as we know. So um, I begin with the insight, which the American uh, historian of empire, of uh, slavery, pardon me, uh, Herbert Aptheker says, which is that resistance uh, is absolutely key to history and the resistance of slaves is absolutely key to the history of slavery. And I take that uh, into uh, thinking about the empire as well. And I also very deliberately begin with Frederick Douglass, the great uh, former slave and a black abolitionist who noted very powerfully that power concedes nothing uh, without a demand and that, again, struggle is absolutely central to freedom and that the story of abolition uh, as as something led by white people uh, has to be challenged. So that is the insight that I take from slavery into empire. I'll give you an example um, of one of the kinds of uh, rebellion I'm talking about. The colonized and the enslaved rebelled in all kinds of ways. There's no simple single way of rebelling. They they withdrew labor. There was active 
rebellion with arms and with force, or they uh, undertook you know, demonstrations, passive resistance. Uh, there isn't a single way of resisting. But one very interesting example, which I talk about in terms of a clash of freedoms, takes place in 1865 in Jamaica, uh, in Morant Bay. Um, and this involves freed slaves and their descendants are uh, undertaking an uprising, which is essentially about the terrible conditions in which they live after so-called emancipation, because what are they emancipated into? They are emancipated into absolute poverty, and they are essentially told that uh, they may no longer be slaves, but they need to continue working on the plantations for a minimum you know, next to nothing, poverty wages. Um, and that that is the definition of freedom. So they're now free to be wage laborers. And their answer is essentially, sorry, no, this is not this is not our understanding of freedom, that for us to go back and work on the plantations, even if it is as nominally free laborers, to us, that is far too close to the conditions of slavery. Mm-hmm. Our idea of freedom is having a very small plot of land that we can farm and be truly independent on that. We don't want profits. We don't want to be part of the mercantile economy. We're not interested in being entrepreneurs. We want our own independence and our autonomy by farming our own land and feeding ourselves and our families. And this is the kind of this is at the heart of the rebellion in Morant Bay. So I also talk about the ways in which it's not just that um, the colonized are rebelling, but they're also putting into the fray their own ideas of freedom, Mm. which are very different from the ideas of freedom that are put in place by capitalism and colonialism. I mean, for me and in the book throughout, I talk about the very intimate relationship between colonialism and capitalism. And, And that is challenged by those who resist the empire. Can you talk a little bit more now about the, the the relationship between capitalism and colonialism? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's a tendency sometimes in our discussions of colonialism to talk about the cultural aspects. You know, we talk of it as one nation versus another nation. So we might say, for instance, India became independent or Nigeria became independent. Um, and that, I think, is a very limited way of looking at it. What, what we know is that, of course, there were cultural dimensions to empire. There were very profoundly degrading racial dimensions to empire. But what was empire at the end of the day? Empire at the end of the day was... Uh, about profits. Um, It was about extracting labor. It was about extracting resources. It was about taking land where necessary in order to perform these functions. Um, It was about bringing profits back from the colonies into what we call the metropole, the great European uh, empires, you know, bringing money back to Europe. Um, And slavery was a foundational moment for that reason, you know, often slavery is talked about uh, in a very self-serving way as something quite separate from empires, you know, something of an accident before, you know, everything became better. But actually, slavery is very foundational to empire because it is a pri- it's kind of primary moment of extracting labor in order to make capital. Uh, you know, Western capitalism is founded on the extracted, extorted labor, unfree labor of right. black people and some subsequently indentured uh, people. We often don't talk about indenture. Slavery was replaced by indenture, which was, uh, you know, just a few steps better than slavery. 
So I think that for me, uh, you can't make sense of the imperial project if you don't talk about capitalism, because mm -hmm. it is all about putting into place capitalism. So we're not post-empire. We are living in a world in which our everyday lives are shaped by, uh, you know, people will use the word legacies, but I tend to use the word afterlife. We have mm -hmm. the afterlife with us today in the ways in which we uh, live economically and deal with each other. Yeah, so often it seems like in conversations here in the U.S., when it comes to things like acknowledging the great economic you know, success that places had, for instance, in the South and the colonies, like, oh, they were successful because of indigo and because of rice and because of cotton. Mm -hmm. And in so many of those conversations, enslaved people aren't mentioned at all. Um, but exactly. we're so integral to that whole process and the economic growth of that place. So, yeah, there's a, there's a huge hole there. So yes, I, absolutely. I, yes, yes. So what were some of the goals of anti-colonial resistance? What was success? What, I guess, success, if you could use that word, what were some of the goals, the things that people wanted to come out of their resistance to colonialism? Yeah. Now, it's very important to remember that um, when people resisted colonialism, it wasn't a kind of simple, OK, we are anti-colonial and we want colonialism gone. Um, you know, very often, as in the case of Morant Bay, which I just discussed, um, they were demands, for instance, for plots of land to farm um, in the cases of uh, India in the early 20th century and um, the West Indies in the 1920s and 30s. It was demands for better conditions better wages, um, um, you know, more uh, rights, more civil rights. Um, so often anti-colonialism took the form of demanding rights from colonial powers and their representatives. So there isn't a, a single model of anti-colonialism, nor is it simply a case of, well, uh, you know, uh, we are anti-colonial and we want colonialism over. You know, often it was, uh, it, they came at it with specific uh, uh, demands and specific agendas. So as I said, there's, there's the land question in uh, Jamaica. When you get to India, there are demands uh, for foreign products to be removed, for the Indian markets to be, uh, you know, self-sustaining, to for, for local products, local industry to not be decimated by foreign products, by, by British industry, protecting local industries. Um, in the 1920s, there are you know, several strikes and great deal of labor unrest uh, in India, which uh, was about you know, better conditions for workers, uh, for not being exploited. Um, again, in the 1930s, uh, much of it takes the form of labor rebellions. There are also demands for more freedom of expression, for the right to assembly. We have to remember that all the rights that people in Britain were starting to take for granted in the uh, uh, in, in London and in, in England in the 20th century, those were not rights that people in the colonies had. So, you know, all the things that, you know, British people took as, as normal, uh, freedom of expression, freedom to write, freedom of press, anti-censorship, uh, the right not to be jailed uh, because you held a demonstration. These were not rights that were available in the colonies. So often anti-colonial uh, struggles took the form of demands for these things. In the 1920s, after the end of the First World War, something very interesting happens. Um, you start to have the idea of self-determination uh, coming into the fray very, very obviously. Uh, it's coming 
from the fact of the Russian Revolution, which is incredibly inspirational uh, to uh, people under the yoke of colonialism, the idea that kind of so-called backward nations can actually revolt uh, against autocracy and tyranny, and that it can actually be done, that you can put in place a new kind of way of governing, a new kind of economic order. Lenin's idea of self-determination is important. At the same time, of course, you've got the Western powers uh, talking the talk of uh, liberty, peace, justice, the equality of nations, right? So uh, the, the European nations and the United States, now led by Woodrow Wilson, are talking about self-determination. And of course, in theory, this is all about uh, you know, global rights. But what do the colonies discover? The colonies discover that Wilson doesn't really mean it to apply to the colonies. Uh, Wilson means, you know, uh, international order, peace, justice, human rights for United States and Europe. And this enables uh, anti-colonial uh, activists, campaigners, thinkers to say, well, hang on a second. We fought alongside you in the First World War because you said this was a war for justice, peace, and human rights and freedom. Well, what about these things for us? Um, and that hypocrisy, that you know, that realization that uh, global didn't really include the whole world, that the colonies were still expected to be subservient to Europe uh, and uh, eventually the United States. I think that provokes a great deal of anger. One of the interesting episodes that I write and uh, talk about in the book uh, is the Italian invasion of what was then known as Abyssinia, uh, the country that we know as Ethiopia today. Italy invades Ethiopia again, uh, having done it earlier uh, in 1934, at the end of 1934, the Emperor Haile Selassie takes an unprecedented step for uh, a non-Western nation. He goes to the League of Nations and he says, excuse me, we've just been invaded. And you have a consensus that sovereign nations cannot be invaded. So what about me? What about my country? And it turns out that the League of Nations has absolutely no intention of restraining Italy. Uh, Britain has no intention of, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing anything about it. And Haile Selassie realizes uh, by taking this public stance, he not only realizes, but he makes very visible the double standards. And this sets off a great wave of rage across the African and Caribbean world. And it really is one of the kind of foundational moments in 20th century Pan-Africanism, which is to say, right, so the standards that apply to the white world uh, and are pretended to be universal really don't apply to us. And that's the kind of moment when self-determination becomes absolutely key across the colonized world. And it becomes very clear that self-determination will not be, quote, unquote, given mm. by Europe or America. It'll have to be seized. We'll be back with more with Dr. Gopal after this break. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. So I know that a lot of the time, anti-colonial resistance was met with resistance by establishments and by the state. What did that look like? Yes. I know that you've mentioned that there were wars under Queen Victoria. So uh, if yes. there, are, those are some of the, the examples of resistance to resistance. And what are some of the other ones as well? Well, I think this is the other aspect of empire that is um, quite casually forgotten, uh, certainly in Britain, uh, which is that it was a very, very bloody enterprise. It was met with resistance, just as slavery was met with resistance uh, all the time. Slaves were always rebelling. The colonized were always rebelling. So what do you do when you have rebelling, uh, unquiet populations? Of course, it, it takes the form of that famous uh, you know, British saying, the natives are restless tonight. The natives were always restless. And what did that mean? It meant you had to bring arms. Uh, you had to bring in the Maxim gun. Um, and so you have wars throughout 
the 18th and 19th centuries. Rebellion was endemic in India. Rebellion was endemic across Africa. I can't list uh, the number of wars uh, that really were about putting empire into place, really were about so-called pacifying uh, natives. Well, let me just uh, mention a few. And just from the kind of mid-19th century Onwards, you've got the Hossa War in South Africa. You've got the Anglo-Persian War. You, of course, have the uh, Indian uh, uprising in 1857, which I talk about. You have the so-called Maori Wars in New Zealand. Uh, you have the Ashanti Wars in Ghana, the Zulu Wars again in Southern Africa. Um, I write about the British invasion of Egypt uh, in 1882 and the resistance to that. You have no less than three wars in Afghanistan. They were known as the first, second, and third uh, Afghan wars, respectively. There were the wars in Sudan around the Mahdi, the Mahdiist wars. Uh, you have campaigns at the beginning of the 20th century in Somaliland. So, you know, I mean, it, and of course, there's China, where you have the Boxer Rebellion also in 1900. And prior to that, the Opium Wars, uh, which was a way of forcing British mercantile interests into a very resistant uh, Chinese empire. So uh, it's just completely endemic. And when they're not taking the form of wars, they are taking the form of very brutal counterinsurgencies. So in 1865, the incident that I referred to as the Morant Bay Rebellion, that was put down with great bloodiness, uh, despite the fact that there was actually very little violence on the part of those who uh, led the uprising. And there were executions, there was martial law imposed, houses were burned, people were killed. Um, and the other point that I make is that often these repressions came back home to Britain. And not all of Britain was comfortable with the violence being undertaken. And so what I write about in much of the book is the people who are saying, not in our name. So people are saying, wait a second, why did you, you know, hang so-and-so? Why were so many uh, houses in Jamaica burnt down? Why were so many Indians put into jail? Uh, why are our gunships uh, in Egypt? So there are people also saying, why is all this happening in our name? Why is so much bloodshed uh, taking place in our name? So really what you've got is either kind of repression of strikes, uh, you have arrests, detentions, martial law, uh, actual killing, actual wars, it, you know, so that the violence of empire um, is very, very uh, strong. In fact, there's a, there's a wonderful book by John Newsinger called The Blood Never Dried, uh, which is really about how there is no dry blood in empire. It's constant bloodshed, constant uh, spilling of blood in the face-off between resistance to empire and putting down that resistance. I'm wondering what what kind of people were actually resisting. So I, I can imagine, you know, they're seeing all this violence happening around them and there could be an element of like having to have a lot of thought put into the resistance and a lot of courage to actually go out and do it. But on the other side, I know that they were fighting for survival and basic rights. So it's like yeah. what they had to do. So what 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 kind of people were resisting? What who were they? 
Well, as you might guess, the answer to that is quite uh, varied. Uh, you know, one of the things about the book um, is that I obviously end up talking about the most prominent figures. I end up talking about the figures who had a voice, um, who had an impact. And for obvious reasons, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are male. Many of them are educated. Uh, many of them have a certain degree of, uh, no, I wouldn't say class privilege, but they have access to uh, platforms. Um, but the truth is that ordinary people were rebelling all the time. We do not know their names. So we do not know all the names of the men and women who were involved in the Morat Bay Rebellion. We do know the most famous uh, people, people like Paul Bogle or uh, George William Gordon, who I write about, who are the men who, uh, you know, can come to the front as leaders and whose impact has felt uh, back in, in Britain. In Egypt in 1882, you have a man called Ahmed Orabi, who comes from a very humble peasant background, but he becomes a a leader in the army and the Egyptian revolution of 1882 is named after him as the Orabi uh, rebellion. Um, in India, you have lots of very ordinary people involved in the boycott movement, in the Swadeshi movement uh, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. But then you have, uh, you know, quite famous nationalist figures who emerge uh, as, as prominent in that. Uh, when you get to Britain uh, in the mid in the 1920s and 1930s, um, you, you're looking at uh, people who've come there from India and from uh, the African uh, continent and from the uh, from West Indies, um, and they are kind of really interesting figures because they're connected to the resistances, rebellions, insurgencies that are taking place back in their home countries, and they are kind of presenting and interpreting them uh, for a British audience. So there are uh, there's a man called Shapurji Saklatwala, who I write about, uh, who's a communist eventually. He starts out in the labor movement in Britain, and then he becomes a communist. Uh, but he's kind of representing uh, in his speeches and in his writings, he's representing the millions of people who are involved in labor organizing and labor demanding labor rights uh, in India. And then uh, you have people like uh, the famous uh, Trinidadian uh, British writer C.L.R. James, who also, of course, spends a lot of time in America, uh, very involved with both the American and the British left. You have the less well-known but equally brilliant George Padmore, uh, also from uh, Trinidad, uh, very much involved in organizing both around uh, labor issues and around race and anti-colonialism. Um, and then uh, when you get to Mau Mau, uh, which is the rebellion that I end with, Mau Mau in quotation marks, it's, of course, the, uh, the rebellion of the Kenyan Land and Freedom Army. Um, again, you have thousands and thousands of ordinary Kenyan men and women, many of whom died uh, in the course of the rebellion. And, but then you have more, you know, more famous names like Tom Maboya or uh, Jomo Kenyatta, who became involved, as, uh, became the kind of figureheads, uh, even though Ken Kenyatta was not actually literally involved with, uh, with that movement. He became a kind of figurehead uh, for it. So you've got a mix of famous names, many of whom I talk about. You've got some less well-known names. Um, and then you have the 
you know, thousands and thousands of ordinary people, uh, including women. I mentioned in passing the uh, famous Nigerian uh, market women's uh, revolt. We don't know the, you know, the great names around that. They're not household names, but they do come back to uh, Britain. Knowledge of it does come back to Britain through the writings of these other people. I'm, I'm assuming that right now you're asking me about anti-colonial figures uh, from the colonies. Yes. Okay, so back in Britain, you've got people, um, I, I began a few minutes ago by saying that, you know, there were people who were saying, well, wait a second, what's going on? Why is this happening in our name? Uh, and again, there are many, many ordinary people who are kind of signing petitions, writing letters to the editor, going to demonstrations at Trafalgar Square or going on marches or, you know, when... Um, when the British government in, in India imprisons 32 people uh, uh, really on trumped up charges in something known as the Merit conspiracy case in 1927, uh, thousands of ordinary Britons sign petitions and, and letters saying, free the prisoners. Uh, why are you imprisoning them in our name? But there are others uh, who, who are more prominent. So um, I talk about in the 19th century, people like Ernest Jones, whose name will be known to some people because he's one of the leaders of the Chartist movement in Britain, which was a movement for rights uh, for ordinary people, voting rights and franchise rights, uh, as well as labor rights. Um, I talk about a man called Richard Congreve, who was influential in intellectual circles and who was one of the first people, you know, in 1857 to say we should leave India and we should leave India unconditionally. What is happening there uh, in our name is unconscionable. I talk about a man called um, Wilfred Blunt, very unusual figure uh, who is sorry, did you want me to? Stop there. No, no, no. I would love for you to talk about Wilfred Blunt. Uh, yes. He was one of the people who I really wanted to hear about because I'm so interested in that kind of change. Because I think there's this narrative around resistance where it's like this person was always so on board and always had this moral compass. But there is the that capacity, you know, or those instances when people did um, go through a process of learning and change their minds about resistance. No, I, I would say that that is... The key point, uh, you know, very few people, including anti-colonialists in the colonies, emerge as fully fledged resistors. There's a constant process of learning, people learning from ordinary insurgencies, people learning from their reading, people learning from other people. So Blunt is a, is a kind of particularly fascinating example. I can see why you were interested in him, because he begins as someone who you wouldn't dream would become a resistor. He's born into the establishment. He's an aristocrat. His family is conservative voting. They're landowners. He lives a kind of very typically rich uh, landowner life. He, you know, he's a, he's a party boy. He's a he's a kind of ladies' man. He he hunts. He horse rides. Uh, he you know goes to balls and 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 becomes a diplomat. Uh, very closely tied up to many political figures in the British establishment. And then he becomes, by the end of his life, a fierce anti-colonialist. I mean, he's constantly condemning Britain's uh, imperial adventures. He even ends up going to jail because he stands up for Ireland uh, and he protests against what is being done to Irish peasants who are being evicted from their land. Now, how does this happen? 
it happens simply through a process of learning and engaging with other cultures, but it also happens by witnessing the Egyptian revolution. Blunt goes to Egypt several times uh, with his uh, wife, Lady Anne. Both of them are very interested in horses. They're interested in Islam. They're interested in, you know, they're kind of classic Orientalists. They're very fascinated by the exotic Orient. And that draws them in the first instance. But then they witness this revolution, which is taking place, led by Colonel Arabi, who I just mentioned. And witnessing that revolution, witnessing and talking to the key figures involved in that revolution, uh, talking to Islamic intellectuals and reformers at the Azhar or the university in Cairo, blunt changes. And, you know, I think we know more about him because he's one of the people who documents his change. He, you know, he's, he's constantly writing and he's saying, and he's constantly assessing his own changes. And he basically says, you know, I began as somebody who loved Britain and who thought that Britain was the fount of liberty and that, you know, Britain would never stand in the way of liberty but my God, I was wrong and how betrayed I feel uh, by my own country. And he actually ends up saying, I consider myself now not an Englishman, but an Egyptian patriot, which is, you know, quite startling. And this mm. takes place in the course of about three to four years. Wow. Uh, and, and by the end of the 19th century, he's writing these astonishing pieces uh, in newspapers where he's just saying, you know, you people are just going to worship uh, in front of yourself. You're going to look at yourself in the mirror and worship your own image. You have no sense uh, of, of the horrors that you have unleashed in the world. And that's a really remarkable transformation. It's one of the more dramatic transformations, but I think there are versions of the story in the case of other people. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back soon. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Then thinking about newspapers, what role did the press play when it came to resistance? Well, as you might expect, the mainstream press, uh, largely in the form of the Times newspaper, was unambiguously then, as now, um, an imperial organ. Um, It was, as Ernest Jones uh, would say in 1857, it was the dishonest organ of the Leadenhall moneymongers. But Jones is one of the many people who are producing, in in much the way that you are, a kind of alternative press. So he edits a paper called the People's Paper. And the People's Paper documents the resistance in India, and it documents British misdeeds in India. And it says, listen, you know, the the, the people who are doing this in India in our name are also the people who are oppressing us back in Britain. So it is better for us to, to throw our solidarity behind the Indian rebels than to identify with our rulers simply because we share the same race. There are other newspapers uh, to which people write letters. So Blunt writes, of course, to the Times. He also writes to the Manchester Guardian, which is a liberal paper then as now, which you know carries a mix of views and tendencies uh, on empire. Um, there are other papers. Sylvia Pankhurst, the great uh, feminist, uh, who edits a paper which begins as the, as the women's dreadnought and then it becomes the workers' dreadnought. Uh, is, is the workers' dreadnought becomes one of the kind of you know anti-imperialist uh, newspapers for a time in the in the immediate First World War period and just after. Um, and there are other kind of uh, smaller newspapers uh, and organs on the left. Um, I talk about a Labour Party independent Labour Party newspaper called The New Leader, uh, which certainly in the 1930s and 40s takes increasingly 
anti-imperialist stances, uh, in part because of the influence of people like C.L.R. James uh, and George Padmore, uh, who are writing for them um, and who are very much involved in advising them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a kind of alternative press, the mainstream press, which could really be only boiled down to the Times and the, uh, and the Guardian, a mixed bag. I would not call them the, the primary platforms for any form of criticism of empire. There's a there's a line that you've said before that really, really struck me. And that was when you said there was no period that was completely about pride or shame. And this idea around how so many people of so many different backgrounds were uh, joining together to do the work, to resist. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what you meant by there was no period that was completely about pride or shame. I think what I was saying, in the, at least in the video, was that nothing uh, is, and no nation, but particularly not the British Empire can be either just about pride or just about shame. No, none of us has histories in which we can say, oh, this is all unambiguously about pride, nor do we all have histories where we say, oh, my God, it's all just completely miserable and shameful. Uh, we all have historical backgrounds, whether as nations or as peoples or as communities, that are a mix of good and bad things. So it's really quite absurd, um, you know, when we hear in Britain, uh, as we often do, and I'm sure there are versions of this in America, uh, oh, we must take pride in our history. The point is our history is a mixed bag. There might be some very wonderful moments in it, uh, and there are some very problematic, troubling, even shameful moments in it. So talking about history either in terms of all pride or all shame, to me, is an unproductive discussion. For me, I think the key word in talking about history is honesty. And I also think, and this is where I really agree with Jamaica Kincaid, uh, the writer, that we also all need to develop a more demanding relationship to history, which is to try to think about history in all its difficulty and all its complexity. So these kind of simple-minded emotions, pride and shame, I have said, and I think that it's the note on which I end the book, uh, is that, that is, these are not helpful uh, terms around which to have a discussion. This is not about emotions. This is not about whipping up one kind of emotion. Uh, or the other. Yeah, there are shameful moments and we need to, you know, stare at them and accept that they happen. And then there are events in which, you know, we might take pride, but um, it, it can't be simple minded. I think that's really what I'm saying. Yeah, I do think that that's a thing that we are reckoning with in the U.S. right now, having that conversation yeah. that people's legacies or histories were very complicated and very nuanced. Yeah. And we don't really know how to talk about that all together. Maybe, you know, individually, on an individual level, we can have those conversations within groups of like-minded people. But I think with people who are, you know, on diff lean different ways, that's a very difficult conversation to have because so many historical things have come up recently, as in, you know, 16, the 400th anniversary of yeah. the first slave ship coming over and yeah. also things like Confederate monuments and what we yeah. name buildings and establishments and who we name them after. So I do think that is definitely something <laughs> that is troubling, yeah. you know, the national conversation right now it is and I think that, but the other problem here is that if you if one if we only talk about it as national conversations mm. then already there is um, a problem because nations do try to attach themselves to very simple ideas mm. um, and so you know Britain 
uh, likes to think of itself, as I said earlier, as the abolitionist nation, which is an absurd idea. Uh, America likes to think of itself as the fount of liberty or fount of democracy, which is an equally absurd idea. Uh, you know, all nations have very checkered histories and they have very checkered histories in relation to each other and in relation to their populations. So, you know, we need to ask, what do we mean when we say uh, the British nation or when we say India, uh, you know, which is, again, a nation under tremendous pressure right now in terms of who are we and what are we doing and what are we doing to the populations we call our own populations? Uh, so, you know, that we need to actually take a good hard look at this we when we talk about the nation and, and ask, well, what are the constituent parts of the we and how did this so-called we come to be? Mm. Yes, and it seems that in America, if you don't talk about slavery or you try to pretend slavery was okay, then you no longer have a national we because, uh, you know, it, it, slavery doesn't mean the same thing to everybody who is part of that nation. And, you, uh, you know, and having a very selective understanding of slavery is also not part of any kind of we. So I think there's a real mismatch between, you know, when we use the national we uh, and then we describe the nation in these fairly simple minded ways on which we are all ostensibly supposed to agree. Right, right. So why do you think it's so important to recover the violence of imperialism and the dissident tradition in Britain? I think it's important precisely towards this discussion of what the national we is. So I think that, you know, for instance, Britain is a country uh, not unlike America, but in, because of a different history, there is a very large Asian population. There is now an increasingly large Muslim population. Uh, there is uh, there are people from Ireland and Scotland uh, in, in the wake of, you know, Brexit. There are all kinds of questions about, you know, whether there is even a United Kingdom given that the Scots and the Irish voted very differently uh, in relation to the referendum on whether to leave Europe. So I think that uh, the, this conversation, recovering the story of empire is actually, and this is what I'd say at the end of the book, perhaps rather controversially, uh, is that having this discussion about the empire is precisely what will enable some kind of national conversation to emerge. Because the history of the empire shapes every single person in Britain in one form or the other. Um, and again, it's not, not about pride or shame. It's, it's simply about, well, how did you come to be here and how were you produced by the empire? And that actually, I would go so far as to say that the equivalent would be, I think, slavery is the fundamental discussion alongside, of course, the question uh, of Native Americans. Uh, and that is the conversation on how was this land settled? And who did the labor to make this land what it is are the fundamental questions uh, that Americans have mm -hmm. to deal with before you can start talking about, you know, immigrants uh, and how you treat immigrants or whether who is an American and who isn't. You have to say, well, uh, you know, how did how did we come to settle this land and who worked this land and who contributed to the, the wealth of this country? So if you don't have these foundational conversations, uh, and also in, in those conversations, engage with kind of constitutive violence and repression, then you're in no position to have an honest discussion about national history or understand what the national we is.
And I haven't fully got the answers to this because I obviously didn't produce this book as, you know, how to resist. Right. But um, <laughs> there's something to be learned from history. And I do very passionately believe that hi- history is vital uh, to how we live today. I would say, well, what we learn from the people that I write about who are all, uh, you know, uh, very, very interesting thinkers. One is that the same forces that oppress within societies uh, are also the forces that are uh, imperial outside countries or that are militarizing outside the country. And I think that it's very important for people across the world to understand that quite often we are uh, oppressed or exploited by the same forces across the globe. You do also learn from a history of anti-colonialism that although it's a very complicated and difficult and often impossible project to resist, not everybody is in a position to resist, people do share a tendency to push against tyranny. Uh, And, you know, when slaves could uh, rebel, they did even in very, very dangerous conditions. Um, And when workers uh, or or colonized peoples resisted, they also did what they could in very difficult conditions. And that tendency that we share uh, as human beings, and it was very clear to me uh, doing this study that people across the globe, if there is a universal value, it is that tendency to push against tyranny and exploitation. And if we can foster that tendency in ourselves, in our societies, then this is a historical moment where we absolutely need to capture and foster that. You also understand that you can learn from the resistances of other people. So you can be inspired by resistances taking place elsewhere. I'm very struck by the number of British dissidents who said, hey, you know what? Not only is resistance happening in the West Indies or happening in India, but my God, we should be learning from this resistance. We should learn how to organize ourselves by looking at the West Indian workers or the the Indian uh, civil disobedience people. And this leads us, I think, to my kind of final uh, insight from having written the book is that building solidarities is vital. What is really striking, particularly in the 20th century, is how people were able to build solidarities across racial and national lines. And not just between black and white or Asian and black uh, and white, but across, you know, Asian people, black people, Muslims and Hindus, across religious boundaries. So, you know, finding a way to learn from each other's resistance and building solidarities. I mean, I think that is not just uh, desirable, but probably from this point on is going to have to be a survival skill. Thanks for listening to this interview. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to give us a shout and let us know what you thought about today's interview, you can do that by email at unpopular at iheartmedia.com, or you can hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at underscore unpopular show. We're on Instagram at unpopular show. And we're on Facebook at this is unpopular. Producer Andrew and I are so excited for season two. We're really excited to share it with you too, so keep your eyes on the feed, and we'll be back soon.
good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.